Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book, so you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Sunit Das. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. And we're going to talk about uh, the biology of stem cells in a normal brain versus brain tumors. So uh, Sunit is a neurosurgeon and a scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and Research Institute in the Hospital for Sick Kids, uh, also associate professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto. So Sunit, thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me about your uh, your research. Are you doing so? The surgery is clinical essentially, but uh, the research is also happening. Are you doing both? Correct. So I'm a neurosurgeon, and as you'd expect from my research focus, my my clinical practice is in neuro oncology. I do surgery uh, for patients with brain tumors, and some of those tumors are benign, and for those patients, surgery is often curative. But many of my patients, and in fact, the most of my patients who have surgery for tumors in the brain have malignant tumors. And for them, uh, surgery is a benefit, but is far from curative. And um, it's those limitations of what I'm able to offer as a clinician that really were the original motivation for my interest in science and continue to be the reason why I, I put energy into work as a scientist. So what kind of um, you know tumors arising from cancers, I would guess, is this glioblastoma? I mean, what are the different types of brain tumors you're working on? Yeah, there are two large categories. One are cancers that arise from uh, other areas in the body and then metastasize to the brain. For example, I see a lot of 
patients who have breast cancer that has uh, now metastasized to the brain or lung cancer that's now metastasized to the brain. And then there are primary cancers. And what you mentioned, glioblastoma, is the most common primary cancer that we see in adults. Uh, and that's what my laboratory focus has been on. So when you're in there doing surgery, you have a unique perspective that researchers don't have. You literally see what's going on. You see what the tumors look like and everything. What, what interesting things have you learned just by observation and doing these surgeries? Richard, that's a great question. You know, I think uh, it is a difficult and tenuous identity to be a clinician and a scientist, and, uh, and certainly hard to have both of those hats. But I do think that there are scientific questions that are informed by being a clinician. And, and for that reason, it's important for clinicians uh, to be scientists and, and to support clinicians who are scientists. I, I think what you bring to the table as a clinician asking scientific questions is, is that you can think about biology in the context of why, how it actually plays out in patients. And, and we see the patient journey uh, from the time of their diagnosis through surgery uh, through chemotherapy and radiation, and we can put the things that we learn from watching cells and the way they behave into the greater context of thinking of a tumor and, and how that manifests in the patient experience. So I, I would say what my clinical life does is it informs the way that I ask scientific questions because it's necessary for me to think about biology uh, on that kind of larger and, and more personal scale. Again, what do you see with these tumors? Like in glioblastoma, is there usually one mass? Are there multiple ones? Like where are they in the brain? What color are they? What shape? What have you noticed? Yeah, so uh, glioblastoma typically presents as a single large mass in the brain. And uh, if we look at the mass, it it is heterogeneous, meaning that uh, it's made up of cancer cells that differ both genetically, genomically, and epigenetically. Uh, And there are multiple different microenvironments. There are areas that are hypoxic uh, and others that are normoxic. And there are different mixes of often immune cells uh, in the tumors as well. There's also a component of the tumor that invades into the brain. And one of the reasons surgery is not curative for glioblastoma is that invasive nature of the tumor. And uh, we know even from very old data, if you take biopsies even centimeters away from the tumor mass, which is what we're often able to resect, uh, you'll find scattered tumor cells within the normal brain. And interestingly, the biology of those cells is often different than the biology of the cells that are within the tumor mass itself. And what that leads to is you could argue that it's not a single tumor that you're dealing with in a single individual. It's actually multiple different tumors uh, in multiple different compartments. What is the, uh, the root of the tumor look like? I mean, does it, does it appear to have a root where there's a, you know, a mass that's outside the brain, but then there's the root part that connects now into, no, so into I the brain tissue itself? So I should be clear, Richard, that so the mass is in the brain itself. And one of the harmful things of glioblastoma is that as this mass grows, it destroys the brain in which it's uh, forming. It's actually one of the reasons why as surgeons, we're able to be quite aggressive with that tumor mass because that tumor mass has already destroyed the brain in the area in which it's grown. So when when one is, as a surgeon, removing tumor, you're, you're working in an area that once was normal brain. But beyond the confines of that mass, tumor cells are able to invade into the normal brain parenchyma as well. And, and we know from long experience that those tumor cells are able to move along white matter tracks, often even into the, uh, the contralateral hemisphere of the brain. 
and they can form nests along tumor vessels or uh, I'm sorry, along uh, the normal blood vessels. So it's, it's um, even after we've done what we would call a gross total resection, where we've removed the whole of the tumor mass, we know that there are still uh, ample cancer cells that are within the brain proper. What does the, um, the brain tissue look like, I guess, right in the heart of the tumor? And then as you spread outwards towards more and more normal tissue, is there just a gradient of cancer cells? Like, again, from the, from the perspective of the eye, what does it look like? Is it a smooth transition to healthy brain tissue or, you know, and then if you, biologically, histologically, what does it look like? Yeah, so, so the, the transition from tumor to brain is sharp enough that one can identify it, uh, a pseudoplane under the microscope. And interestingly, if, if I were to send what I saw as tumor to the pathologist, they would see solid sheets of tumor. They wouldn't see normal brain left at all. Then there's this transition zone. And beyond that zone, if I were to take a sample, the, the pathologist would tell me, well, I'm seeing normal brain with some scattered tumor cells in it. And then there's this kind of transition where that boundary is much sharper to me by eye than it is histologically, where one would see brain that simply has a, a greater or lesser burden of tumor within it. Uh, but Richard, within the tumor itself, um, the pathologists don't see brain neuropil. It's, it's, it, we'll see just solid sheets of tumor cells. It appears to be what a changeover of the existing healthy brain cells into tumor cells or... The, the, way to, the best way to understand it is that the tumor destroys the brain as it proliferates. If you look genetically, if, if when we do genetic study of cancer cells, I mean, it's, it's clear cancers are not only in the brain, but throughout the body. These are normal cells that have garnered a mutational burden that makes them ab- abnormal in their behavior. It's, it's, it's not a foreign invader, right? As you know, it's, it's something that's arisen within the body from normal cells. Uh, but, but we can see lineages in these cancers that tell us that that they've arisen from a population that is kind of at their origin distinct. In other words, the cancer is not recruiting more cells to become cancerous. Oh, okay. All right. I guess if I, I thought you didn't know. So what, what major hypotheses are you researching and looking at in terms of brain cancer? What are you trying to figure out? So my lab really is focused on understanding what it is that allows these cells to become resistant to the therapies that we have. And we have kind of two scopes of interest. One is can we identify novel therapies uh, that could be used to treat these cancers? And two, are there mechanisms that we can disable in the cancers that make them more susceptible to the treatments that we have? Okay. So, I mean, the current treatment, I guess, chemo, is, is chemo used for brain tumors or is it more radiation? For some reason, I've heard a lot more about targeted radiation than the chemo for brain tumors. So have us be pretty specific because the way we treat different tumors differs. But so for glioblastoma, the, the standard of care is maximal safe resective surgery, followed by six weeks of radiation therapy with concurrent chemotherapy with an agent called temozolomide, followed by six months of treatment with temozolomide with that same chemotherapy. And, and we have pretty clear data that show that each one of those treatments is a necessary benefit. So there's a, a benefit to surgery. And the more we can do as surgeons, the better our patients do. There's a benefit to radiation therapy. And then there's a additive benefit to chemotherapy. Okay. So what, again, what are some novel treatments that you're looking at and how would they affect? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, 
and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. In our laboratory, we've been interested in looking for ways to disable the mechanisms by which these cancers become resistant to the chemotherapy temozolomide. We've been working to make small molecule inhibitors of a gene called ID1 that we found to be part of the resistance mechanism of these cells. And so far, we've been able to validate this as a target um, in models. We, We haven't translated it to practice, but uh, it, it's something that we're encouraged by our results. Has anyone taken, I mean, have you or anyone uh, tried to look, let's say, 3D at a given tumor, a brain tumor, and try to, any, you know, what mutations are where, et cetera? Yeah, so Richard, there are very large-scale efforts to do that, um, some of which we're part of. This involves really large teams with different sorts of expertise, but there have been a lot of efforts over the last decade and, and ones that have had a lot of traction trying to understand the, the pathways that these cancers take as they become malignant um, and uh, to try to understand the diversity that we see in these tumors and uh, try to see if, if there are ways that we can make sense of this heterogeneity. Well, has anyone mapped the heterogeneity, again, 3D spatially from, let's say, the center of a mass radially outwards to see what it looks like? You know, can you, can you tell if you pick a, uh, you know, a cancer cell out of a tumor how far along the line of differentiation it is and who its progenitors are? We are able to do that. We do create what are called lineage maps. There are shared mutations that we see across patients. Glioblastoma is remarkable for the diversity that we still see even within patients and uh, the unpredictable diversity that we see. In terms of a 3D map, you know, one of the difficulties in tumor surgery in the brain is that we often have to work through corridors that are quite small because we can't afford injury to the normal brain. Uh, and it's it's not always feasible to maintain that 3D architecture. The closest I'd say we probably come as a field, uh, and some of these are studies that I've been involved in, are, are targeted biopsies. Okay, targeted biopsies. And what, what do you uh, biopsy? What are you getting? So to, to put a needle into a particular area in the brain. Oh, you're biopsying the brain itself or the, the tumors? So imagine a single tumor mass. So there have been Study approaches where, for example, we've decided we're going to biopsy 15 different regions of the tumor, and we have a spatial understanding of where that tissue is coming from, uh, and then we study each of those coordinates uh, as independent variables. Okay, so is this study uh, done already, or is it about to be done? Like, what stage is it? This is published work that I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah, so what was found with these particular needle biopsies? We found, unfortunately, that these tumors are very heterogeneous. And that it's very difficult to predict their biology. When you say heterogeneous, uh, what, you know, you said the genetic, genomic, and epigenetic heterogeneity. I don't know, are there any patterns to it that can be exploited that you found? Yeah, so there are patterns. And um, our group and multiple other groups have found a recapitulation of patterns across patients. It gives us some hope that we're coming closer to understanding the evolution of these tumors. But so far, Richard, none of them have uh, been ones that we've managed to exploit in any meaningful way. Okay. Well, what, what are some other areas of, uh, of research that you're into that you think may be more fruitful? 
so much of it is really developmental at the moment. And um, I'll say glioblastoma has unfortunately been a cancer so far where we have made remarkable strides in understanding its biology, but haven't seen those successes translate to ones that are, have benefited. It's been a real frustration. What do you think is going to be, uh, I don't know, the next step in terms of uh, inc- you know, improving the standard of care? What, what areas do you see that uh, you know, could be improved and how? Uh, we, we have had the fortune of, uh, of finding that some of these tumors in some individuals have uh, genetic alterations that are targetable. For example, a subgroup of patients have tumors that possess a mutation in a gene called BRAF, very similar to, this, uh, to mutations that we see in, in some patients with melanoma. Uh, and we've started using targeted therapies against that BRAF mutation in this subset of patients. There are other patients who have gliomas with a mutation in a gene called IDH. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, isocitrate dehydrogenase. And there have been multiple efforts to develop inhibitors of this gene, one of which is in clinical trial right now in Canada. Uh, so, so these are all nascent efforts, Richard. They're all unfolding. Uh, we'll have to see if they, they actually are, are ones that play out and, and prove to be fruitful, but they're, they're very much a moving target. But I'll say again, that's a subset of patients. It's not something that um, uh, reaches all patients, certainly. Okay. Very good. Need, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and your clinical work? Where can they go? Uh, they can certainly uh, look at um, my website at the University of Toronto and look at my publication, the publications that have come from my group and from my collaborators. Uh, I've spoken about uh, our work before uh, in forums that are on YouTube. I'm happy to connect with people as well. You know, glioblastoma is a rare disease if you look at it in the scope of other cancer. And it's um, for that reason, it's, it's one that I think as a scientific community, we've really approached as a unified group. I think we, we've all been discouraged uh, by how difficult it has proven as a disease to, to try and make progress on. And, uh, I'll say we're, we're a, a community for that reason. I think we've realized that we need the expertise of all of us in order to make some traction on this, on this disease. Mm. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, very good, Cindy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.